125 years ago today, the city of Chicago burned in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. We're going to find out a little bit more about that uh, historic fire today in a conversation with uh, Professor Karen Soslack, an assistant professor of history at Stanford University. Uh, she has written a book called Smoldering City, Chicagoans and the Great Fire, 1871 to 1874, published by the University of Chicago Press, 1995. And um, Professor Soslack, some of our listeners may be wondering uh, why a professor out at Stanford out on the West Coast was interested in the Chicago Fire. Right. Um, well, I'm a Chicago area native, and um, it's, it was just always something I wanted to do. Um, I remember the, uh, I guess, 100th anniversary, mm-hmm. and uh, getting getting kind of interested at the moment. And I am primarily a social historian, interested in social relations. And for me, uh, looking at the fire, and especially the process of reconstruction, was a way to understand how the city um, has been constituted at that particular time. Is there a lot to draw on about the Chicago Fire and the city and the people of Chicago at that time? Oh, tremendous amount. I mean, uh, the Chicago Fire was really the first great media event in the United States uh, and just, just widely, widely covered. Um, when you're looking in Chicago itself, it's a little problematic because m- many of the uh, first uh, records, um, you know, burned. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of this history that starts with the fire, and uh, which made it somewhat more difficult to to work on. But um, as an event, it it attracted enormous attention, and um, just an enormous amount was generated um, in the process of managing. Uh, problems that the fire raised, such as um, relief and uh, physical rebuilding. Take us back 125 years to Chicago in October of, of 1871, before, before the fire, in the days before the fire. What kind of a city was Chicago like at that time? Well, Chicago was growing very fast. It was a place that um, had just expanded enormously from about the late 1850s up to 1871, the time of the fire. Chicago, you know, as, as many of your listeners probably know, was really this great transportation center. And uh, with the Civil War, um, when uh, the South was uh, basically disconnected from the rest of the country during that period, Chicago especially prospered. And it was also a very magnetic destination for immigrants, um, especially uh, Irish and German-Americans. How, so big a, how big a city was Chicago at that time? About 300,000. Uh, but again, the important thing to remember is that it had been 100,000 uh, 10 years before the fire, and it had been 30,000 10 years before that, and it had been 300 you know, 10 years before that. So Chicago was was really seen as this kind of great um, shock city of the West, uh, the, the place where America was growing fastest and had the most promise in a lot of ways. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that October of, of 1871. Were there uh, some factors, if you will, that, that came together to that uh, uh, led to the fire being as... Uh, uh, as uh, enormous as it was, perhaps the weather, perhaps the fire service in Chicago at the time? Yeah, uh, well, both of those things were important. Um, the whole uh, upper Midwest 
had been in a drought, which is one of the reasons you had the Peshtigo fire mm-hmm. as well. Uh, in Chicago, uh, great fire, well, uh, fires were not so uncommon uh, as they were not uncommon in most cities in the United States in the 19th century, where you had uh, basically wooden construction. So uh, fires were constant. And what had been going on in Chicago up to October 8, uh, 1871, there had been a whole series of fires, including one the, the night before, which had been very substantial. And, uh, you know, some people make the point that, you know, basically the fire companies were already exhausted. And when this new alarm came in, they just didn't have the manpower, didn't have the equipment to respond. Uh, another thing that happened very specifically was that the initial alarm was rung to the wrong bell. So the, uh, the fire company went out to the wrong location, and that might have given the fire uh, a special chance to, to really get burning. And the wind was blowing, and, you know, that was, that was about it. Hmm. Was uh, was the Chicago Fire Department at the time uh, a professional full-time department, and what kind of equipment would they have had? Well, it was a professional full-time department, um, but it wasn't, you know, very large by mm. our standards. They had horse-drawn, you know, of course, uh, wagons and a certain amount of pumping equipment. And there were some water lines to draw on because there was a waterworks for the city, but that did not extend throughout the city, so the the firefighting capacity was really pretty limited. Professor Soslack, do we know how the Chicago fire started? Has has Mrs. O'Leary and her cow been getting a bum rap all these years? Well, um, uh, yeah, they actually have. Um, I think uh, no one knows how the Great Fire started. There are some new theories about uh, these days that it was uh, uh, kind of an itinerant Irish immigrant who might have been a neighbor of the O'Leary's. The fire did start in the O'Leary barn. Uh, Mrs. O'Leary was formally exonerated by the fire uh, commissioners. There was an investigation right after the fire, and they they said, no, you're clear. you know, we, we don't think it was you. But um, there were some other theories that also came up shortly after the fire. Uh, about two weeks after the fire, there was a newspaper report that it had actually been started by a communist. Um, so this, this notion that someone involved in class warfare had burned down the city to sort of wreak revenge on the great capitalists. And, and he was apologizing because it had accidentally gotten out of control and burned all of these working-class neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, it, it spawned a lot of its own mythologies, uh, but the actual uh, genesis is not clear. There's also a theory um, that a comet uh, hit, hit the upper Midwest, which started the fires in Chicago, in Peshtigo, and also in uh, northern Michigan that were all the same night. Hmm. Um, you mentioned that, well, for our listeners, most of our listeners, I would guess, are at least somewhat familiar with Chicago since we're so we're so close. Mm-hmm. What, what part of the city did the fire start in? Well, sort of the southwest uh, part of the city, southwest of the Loop, basically. 
quickly. Um, Chicago in 1870, uh, they described themselves as being divided into three divisions by, by the way the river ran uh, uh, west, south, and north. Uh, so it actually started in the west division and then jumped the river, uh, kind of going toward the lake, and then started moving north towards what would now be the loop and uh, burned the entire downtown district up to the river, uh, jumped the river again, uh, and then continued all the way up the north side to what would be about uh, what's now the southern uh, border of Lincoln Park, um, or a little bit further even, Fullerton Avenue. Mm. So pretty, pretty substantial. Yeah, that's an enormous area. Is Fullerton yeah. about, what, 4,800 north, something um, like that? Not quite that far. I think it's 16. No, it's further than that. Um, 20, something like 2,000, 20, I think. Okay. Yeah. And from, what, about 1,200 south or so, or a little farther that's south right. than that? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Enormous fire. You yeah, know, about six square miles that oh, burned. Okay. You mentioned that the first alarms, how did how did you put it, uh it was something about the wrong bell. What? What? Yeah. Was that well, there about? was there was um, basically a kind of primitive electrical system, uh, signal system, mm-hmm. and uh, so alarm boxes at different uh, quadrants or areas in the city. And when there was a fire, you know, regular citizens could set off the alarm, or a local constable or police person, policeman, I should say, <laughs> at that time, um, would have would have sent in a signal to a central office, and, you know, some kind of board would light up showing where it was. And what happened was that uh, the wrong signal got triggered somehow, so the initial uh, dispatch was to the wrong location. Hmm. Was uh, virtually all of Chicago at that time wooden construction? Pretty much. Um, the The exception to that would have been more expensive buildings mm-hmm. uh, in the downtown, which were sometimes built out of stone or brick, um, but wood was cheap and uh, pretty readily available, you know, coming from the forests in Wisconsin and Michigan mm-hmm. and Minnesota, and um, there were virtually no building codes uh, that, that made any kind of um, provisions for fire safety. Uh, some of that started happening after the fire, but not before. Was there, there panic? In the city, panic. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I and mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, some of your listeners may be familiar with some of the visual representations of the fire, uh, and it's just this crush of people uh, rushing to evacuate. Um, I think it's interesting that um, so few people died in the fire. Um, it's usually estimated to be around three hundred, and when you think that there were, you know, over 300,000 people in the city and the scale of the destruction, um, that's pretty amazing. The reason for that, um, I think, is because Chicago, you know, as you know, is, is built, it's very flat, and it has a lot of um, straight, level streets. And people could see it just cleared out uh, ahead of it. And, and so you have these extremely dramatic... Uh, lithographs primarily of this flight before the flames and then some people were many people 
or unfortunate enough to get trapped on the uh, lakeshore. They had no way to go but, but east, basically. And, and so they would have waited it out for hours, just, you know, immersing themselves in the water, which, uh, you know, was October. This was not pleasant. It was a really awful experience. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of evidence of people just being at a loss for words to describe what it was like for them. But, you know, you just can't imagine what, what I went through. Do we have a, a good sample of, uh, of first-person accounts of, uh, of the fire? Yeah, there's, there's actually um, probably close to 120 oh. at the Chicago Historical Society, um, which they, they've made a very concerted effort to collect. Um, they, uh, you know, I think were, were sort of paying attention to that at the time. And then also... Um, uh, when the very first commemorations of the fire began, like 10 years after, 25 years after, people at that point did sort of early oral histories and, and uh, recruited survivors to tell their story. So uh, another thing that happened is because the fire was such a major media event for the time, um, not a few people made a certain amount of money off of it by going out and presenting lectures. Um, you know, how I survived the Great Chicago Fire, my experience of this awful tragedy. And if you look through newspapers, uh, really throughout the country, you can find these things. Uh, so, so they're pretty readily available. How well did the local Chicago government handle the, the fire and its, uh, and its aftermath? Well, that's, that's a complicated question. Um, I think that, you know, given the scale of the task, uh, that, that it really was just a remarkably quick reconstruction. Now, how much of that was, <clears throat> excuse me, directly attributable to local government, I think is kind of um, up in the air. Uh, they, for example, uh, the whole issue of municipal provision of charity, the city government, the mayor specifically, decided to turn that over to a private organization, which handled that. Um, and then during the initial um, recovery, really the first like 20 days after the fire, the mayor um, again decided that he wanted a military occupation of Chicago to uh, ensure public safety. So that was actually very controversial. And it lasted, uh, you know, somewhat over two weeks. Um, and then, you know, there were efforts by city city politicians to do things like pass new fire codes, uh, which ran into a lot of controversy because they, they wanted to do things like outlaw wooden construction completely. And that raised problems for people because many uh, folks who lost their homes couldn't afford to rebuild if they didn't rebuild with wood. So there was there were many protests and sort of compromises emerged out of that. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's, it's complicated. I, I deal with a lot of this in, in my book, which is really about the period of Reconstruction uh, more than the fire itself. But um, I, I would say, again, the, the physical recovery was, you know, remarkably fast. Uh, the statistics are that Chicago rebuilt itself 
you know, in terms of the number of buildings lost within a year. And it even expanded as it rebuilt because it became, you know, again, seen as this sort of site of opportunity. And lots of people came. Uh, money was invested. Uh, but I think um, I would say that what rebuilt Chicago wasn't so much what the government did as what the private investors who had already sunk a, a fair amount into the city did after the fire. Karen Soslack is an assistant professor of history at Stanford University, a Chicago native. She's the author of Smoldering City, Chicagoans and the Great Fire, 1871 to 1874, published by the University of Chicago Press in uh, 1995. uh, Professor Soslack, would would the average citizen of that day, the average homeowner, or or even the uh, bigger business people have had some kind of fire insurance? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I definitely, people took out fire insurance policies because, um, as I've said, uh, fires were so very common in in cities in this period. But there was this sort of interesting differential. Um, more uh, prosperous businessmen tended to insure their property with companies that were national. Uh, or or even European, so like Lloyd's of London, for example, or or great German insurance companies had a lot of clients in Chicago because American companies were were sort of notoriously prone to failure. And this this is what happened to a lot of uh, less wealthy property owners, uh, especially immigrants. What they would often do was insure with local fire insurance companies and uh, fire insurance, all kinds of insurance, were completely unregulated in these years. So uh, what what was happening was that uh, a local company would just write as many policies as it could, um, and there was no check to make sure that their assets were sufficient to pay uh, to pay the value of a policy should there be a claim, and they were not distributing their risk. They were just insuring right in the city. So when the fire hit, and it did so much destruction, something like uh, 100 American insurance companies went bankrupt as a consequence, and most of the less wealthy property owners received only partial uh, payments on their policy, if anything. I mean, I I think the average was something like 11% on the value of a policy. What role did um, uh, General Philip Sheridan play in the aftermath of the fire? Uh, well, Sheridan was the Army commander who was in charge of the military occupation of the fire. And uh, he was basically invited by, by the city's mayor, uh, who was named R.B. Mason, to be in charge of the project of public order. So he uh, brought in several companies of infantry who had been off fighting the Indian Wars and, and uh, sort of stationed them um, not so much all over the city. Uh, the infantrymen were dispatched to stand guard over the ruins of the financial district. But it's interesting, but the idea was that there was this wealth that was like in buried safes that would be looted by people if it wasn't you know protected by these professional soldiers. Uh, Sheridan did a few other things. He, he 
basically coordinated the efforts of volunteer militiamen who came from all over the state. And also, you know, there were many people in Chicago who, who were not personally affected by the fire in terms of the loss of their own home or, or any property. Uh, about 100,000 were left homeless after the fire, so, you know, two-thirds still had their homes. Um, about 75% of the buildings in the city were still standing. So there were a lot of people who were able to volunteer, uh, shared and coordinated their efforts. And he did a few other things. Um, he, he, he basically was in charge of the city for, for a brief period. And, like, there were a few cases of um, what he thought, well, what everybody thought were extortion, like scarce commodities, right, in the aftermath, like hotel rooms were, were gouging. They were charging some incredible amount. And he would go in and take them over and say, you know, we're gonna, you have to charge a fair price. He did that with a few grocers. So, you know, he was actually pretty popular. How long did the fire burn? The fire burned um, for about 36 hours. It started in the evening on October 8th, um, and I guess about 8, 9 o'clock, and it burned the whole next day, and then it finally burned out um, sort of in the early morning, late morning hours of, of the next the next day. A couple times, Professor Sosnack, you've referred to the Great Chicago Fire as the first great media event. Mm-hmm. How, how did the word get out, and what, how soon did it get out, and what kind of impact did it have across the country? Yeah. Well, it actually, you know, was reported on as it happened which was one of the first times that ever happened um, with, with news gathering or the whole information industry in the United States. And that was because the Telegraph had really been, um, uh, you know, established and, and perfected, uh, especially during the Civil War, um, you know, battle dispatches. Uh, this kind of reporting became more the norm. And so what happened during the fire was that reporters were, you know, in some office, you know, basically dictating, you know, and the fire is coming up this street and people are running away and, you know, on and on and on. So there are accounts in other cities um, of people gathering at the offices of these newspapers where the dispatches were transcribed and then posted on bulletin boards and people would stand there and read about it and, and know about it you know, as instantly as you could in, in 1870. Um, so that was one way. Um, this was also a time when visual uh, information, like lithographs, uh, not quite yet photographs, were, were being able to be mass-produced. So there were many um, weekly publications that, that were, like, called illustrated magazines, mm-hmm. and these would run huge spreads on big dramatic events like the Great Fire. So uh, the, you know, within four or five days, these kinds of visual images would have gone out all over the country as well. How quickly were the Chicago papers able to get back into action covering this big story? Um, I think the quickest was within two days. Hmm. That was the Tribune. Um, and then some of the German language papers were, were right there as well. Um, they basically relocated temporarily to uh, areas 
parts of the city that had not been burned, uh, borrowed equipment from uh, newspapers in other Illinois cities, and were able to start to start working again for about six weeks. I'd say when you read through the newspaper, they're not up to to their regular size, uh-huh. sort of short short edition, but really pretty quickly. And uh, as you can imagine, those that was another uh, area where I think General Sheridan stepped into and price fixing because everybody wanted to get their hands on a newspaper to know you know the scope of this event, and, and they were you know scarce and hard to come by in Chicago. Did uh, Chicago get help from outside uh, in the wake of the the Great Fire? Oh, tremendous amount, uh, and it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain way that the Great Fire was portrayed in the media as being sort of the great healing episode for the nation after the Civil War. Because the war, of course, had just ended in, in 1865. This was six years later. And this idea that donations were, were flooding in from all over, that the people were reaching out to help each other, uh, got a lot of press, a lot of attention. Uh, and they're just, I mean, the, the response was, was, you know, quite amazing. Um, I think it's important to remember that there was no kind of governmental coordination. There was nothing like the Red Cross. Um, these were basically private individuals, uh, private groups, sometimes city governments that would make donations to what was called the Fire Fund. So from throughout the United States and um, to some extent throughout the world. Um, some European cities, in particular uh, German cities, because there were so many Germans um, in Chicago and you know, through the whole Midwest, uh, made enormous contributions. Many of us who have been down on Northern Mich- North Michigan Boulevard have seen the water tower and the pumping station. Mm-hmm. What's the story behind them? Uh, well, those are the two structures um, in that area that survived the fire. Um, I, you know, there's you see a certain amount of, of material that attributes it to the the Lamont limestone, but which is what what they're built of. Um, but uh, the pumping station uh, was was basically disabled uh, pretty quickly when the fire began, and that also contributed to the inability to fight the fire very effectively. But those were surviving structures in what otherwise was, you know, just this wasteland. If you've ever seen pictures, uh, they're just, you know, the devastation is, is striking. It's very intense. The fire was very hot, and it burned very quickly, and, you know, Almost nothing survived it. It was probably just some kind of quirk hmm. that that these buildings stayed up. In your research and and your your reading about the fire and its aftermath, are there a couple, uh, one or two perhaps, favorite characters or favorite personalities of yours? Um, well, let's see. I mean, I, I you know would still have to vote for Mrs. O'Leary. You know, not <laughs> for really the conventional reasons. But because um, she, uh, you know, this, this, the fire really, in a way, kind of made her life miserable. It, it made everyone's life miserable, but uh, she became the celebrity 
and it was not a celebrity that she in any way wanted. And, you know, she became a recluse, and people would go to her year after year on the commemoration, and she'd slam the door in their face and, you know, <laughs> threaten them with lawsuits, <laughs> you know, kind of on and on and on. Um, she, you know, I think is an interesting, for me, symbol of uh, kind of, you know, how the, how the fire itself has taken on these, these very mythic dimensions. But it, it also had such a um, intense impact on, on so many different individuals. Um, another, uh, well, I think there are two other people who I, I get got very interested in. Uh, one was the uh, Joseph Medill, whose name may be familiar to mm-hmm. you or to your listeners. Um, he's uh, with the uh, publisher and owner of the Tribune, and a very important Republican politician who became the mayor of the city uh, very shortly after the fire, about six weeks after the fire, there was a mayoral election. And I, I just found Medill fascinating because he was this sort of uh, aspiring politician who had long wanted to serve. And when the fire struck, there was this kind of, you know, well, who's going to be our mayor? We've got all these great problems. It can't be business as usual. And everyone kind of looked to Medill as this man of um, uh, just just uh, indisputable character and um, uh, judgment. And he was kind of made mayor by acclamation. But his administration was extremely rocky, and he just proved to be very ill-suited to the kind of compromises that being an urban politician, you know, especially in Chicago, <laughs> often require... And, in fact, he didn't serve out his term. He ended up resigning after about 19 months, and he, he just left and went to Paris, which uh, <laughs> oh, I thought was very, uh, you know, interesting. Yeah. Um, the other person I am interested in especially is a man named Wirt Dexter, who was uh, a railroad manager, had some lumber interests. He was the executive chair of this, organization that handled relief called the Relief and Aid Association, and really a very powerful man in the city uh, whose, whose name is not known, um, you know, in, in any way, you know, he's not nearly as famous as the McCormicks or Marshall Field or George Pullman, but um, I think, you know, he was kind of the power behind the throne um, and a very important figure uh, in, in the whole process of Reconstruction. It's probably worth mentioning what happened to the O'Leary's house in the fire. Uh, well, nothing happened to it, right? <laughs> right. Uh, that was part of her problem. I mean, you know, that people just would say, oh, you know, this woman has wreaked havoc upon the entire city, and look, her own house has escaped unscathed uh, because it burned in the other direction. Um, her barn burned down, but her house stayed up, mm. and... Uh, she, she liked to complain. I mean, she said she had losses, too. She actually lost uh, not one, but four cows to the fire. Uh, but, but I got a lot of sympathy. Well, Professor Soslak, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us uh, today. It's a fascinating slice of American history. Uh, Karen Soslak is an assistant professor of history at Stanford University. Uh, she is the author of Smoldering City, Chicagoans and the Great Fire, 1871-1874.
published by the University of Chicago Press in 1995. And Karen Soslack has been our guest today here on WGTD, FM 91.1.